You can turn to Romans chapter 16. We'll be jumping around a good bit this morning, but we'll start there. Just to follow up with what Gary was saying, uh, there are two sign-up sheets right in the back of this sanctuary, and so they just say small group sign-up on the top. Um, If you have not been in a small group up to this point, we would welcome you to put your name on those sheets and look forward to you joining us in that ministry this fall. And uh, if you were in a small group last year... um, We'll just plan on you continuing in that unless you let us know otherwise. Um, But this morning we wanted to specifically go through and give a biblical reasoning for our small groups. Um, Obviously we started this ministry with a purpose and there is a biblical reason for it. And so I want to go through and detail a lot of that this morning. Um, And so we'll go through some different passages in the New Testament that are foundational to the small group ministry. Um, Small groups are not the only application of these passages. If you don't attend this church, um, if you can't be in a small group, you still are commanded to live out these passages, and you can. Um, But the small group ministry was started with these passages and others in mind. And so what I did for this study is I looked for the phrase, one another, in the New Testament. It is a common phrase. Um, just so you know, I only looked in the ESV simply for the ease of study for my own purposes. Um, and I found eight separate negative command passages. So this would be a, a passage similar to, do not hate one another. So that would be a negative command. And then I found 42 separate positive command passages in the New Testament with the phrase, one another in them. Uh, the most frequent is to love one another. And that should come as no surprise. That occurs 12 times. And so what I did after that is I broke these down into nine different groupings. Some passages just seem to to go together fairly well. And so I want to look through all of those with you this morning. Charles Spurgeon said that nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. So the person who is within the walls of the church, but is not part of the church life, can do great damage. And that's where these one another passages come into play. What does the Bible say that we ought to be doing as church members towards one another? And therefore, how can we live that out? So the first grouping, if you're a note-taker, the first grouping is to greet one another with a holy kiss. This occurs five times. Uh, Four times it occurs with the phrase one another. But this is a common phrase that you find at the end of books in the New Testament, to greet one another with a holy kiss. And this was a common greeting that occurred in the early church. It was a means of demonstrating warm affection towards one another. This is not a specific command that we need to incorporate into our culture today. Unless your name is Larissa, I don't want you to come up to me after and try to kiss me. Um, And I hope there's only one Larissa here. Warm affection is appropriate and natural in the family of God. It is natural, it is appropriate in the family of God. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Christ, and we are brought into a family that has connections and roots that run deeper than any other connection in this world. Your closest family members do not have connections this deep. Right? The, the family of God is tighter and closer And we have a connection that runs far deeper than anything else. And so affection should be genuine and visible. It should be obvious that we as a people 
love one another. And that can come through in a way like greeting one another affectionately. On to our second one, and I classify this as, as the prayers. Um, Paul especially very often prays for people as he writes his letters. And in one of his prayers, he mentions this phrase, one another. It's in Romans 15, so you can flip back one chapter. I believe these are also coming up on the overhead above, if you don't want to turn the pages. Romans 15, in verses 5 through 6, it says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you want a very good book on Paul's prayers, pick up Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. Our small group did that last year, and it is a wonderful book teaching us how to pray and how to pray in a very biblical way. Paul does that here, and it's an encouragement to hear how somebody's praying for you. It's also a challenge, right? When you hear that somebody is praying for your spiritual growth, or they're praying for you to be edified, uh, or to be a witness in a certain relationship, it, it reminds you, right? and it challenges you to, to keep on. So it's a blessing and an encouragement and even a challenge sometimes. In this context, the Roman Christians were struggling with stronger believers and weaker believers in the church. And Paul writes a lengthy section telling them to bear with one another, to accept one another, to love one another, and then he tells them that he's praying this for them. That they might live in harmony with one another. That they might learn to accept one another because God is never honored by divisions and fractures in the church. That there are instances and certainly times when it is necessary to send somebody out of the church, somebody who is living in sin, but that is not a church division. Church divisions happen when believers let things other than the gospel divide them. Right? They let petty things get in the way of good biblical Christian fellowship and those become more important than their, their love and their harmony. And so Paul prays against that. God is honored when we, in all of our diversity, and we can look around this morning and see diversity. Right? We are different people. We come from different backgrounds. We like different things. We have different preferences. We have different jobs. We have different incomes. This is not a normal gathering of people in our world. Like We don't normally associate with this many people that are this different from us. God is honored when in all of this diversity we stand together and worship Him and adore Him and love Him. This is something, as Paul prays, that happens in accord with Christ Jesus. And this is another great reminder. Biblical truth can never be sacrificed for the sake of unity. There are ecumenical pushes in modern day Christendom and they seek to eliminate truth so that we can all get together and have something to rally around. The, the problem is, when you eliminate truth, there's nothing to rally around any longer. And so Paul prays that we would be in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And we'll touch on this later, but unity is first with our Lord and then second with each other as we together follow our Lord. It's a great truth for our culture today. Diversity is not a positive thing in our culture. People want to be diverse, but, but our culture is more and more divided as we try to pursue that. So you look at divisions of rich and poor and, and different ethnic backgrounds, political perspective, it's, it's getting worse and worse. 
the church is a place where that needs to be eliminated. And we rally around Christ no matter who is sitting next to us, as long as they love Christ as we do. Our next grouping, and you can go to Romans 15:14, so just a few verses down. Our next grouping is simply stated realities. And there are a few verses in this. Nope, sorry, just the one. Stated realities. Paul sometimes just says things that are true about Christians. And in Romans 15, 14, we find that. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. So this is a stated reality. This is what he sees in them. They are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct, there's our phrase, one another. They are able to instruct one another. So, so Paul is rightly praising the Romans as he finishes out his letter. This isn't merely wishful thinking. This, this is what God has done in them and what God does in every Christian as they mature in the faith. God grows in his people goodness. He grows in them knowledge and the ability to instruct one another. This is because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that is a transforming power. We don't stay the same once we're saved. If you've been saved for any amount of time, you are different than you used to be. And so there are things that are true about you simply because God has been working in you. This is one of those that Paul sees in the church at Rome. The implication, however, is that their ability to teach is being used. And they are teaching one another. Ability is not known unless it is demonstrated. I can tell you things that I'm able to do, but you should not believe some of those things unless I can demonstrate it. Paul sees that these believers are able to instruct one another because they are doing it. And so the question to us is, are you able... And if you are a believer, you are in some measure able. And then secondly, and more importantly, are you using that ability? And this is one reason, specifically, that we started the ministry of small groups. It provides a venue for this to happen more consistently. Again, it's not the only place it can happen. It it better not be the only place it is happening. But it is an opportunity for us to do that. The next two passages I've grouped into a heading that I called Speaking. And this is specifically relating to how we as believers talk to one another. Ephesians 5 is the first passage. And I'll I'll preface verse 19 with verse 18, where it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul is setting up the, the contrast there. And then he says in verse 19, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with And so this involves our speech. This involves, in the context, us being imitators of God. This is Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. And this is one of the ways we do it. And the contrast that Paul is setting up is, is what you used to do in your old life, this life of sin, this life that he describes as drunkenness and debauchery. And he says, instead of following after that any longer, pursue instead this. Pursue the Spirit. 
and address one another instead of going to parties and carousing together. Instead, get together and address one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, worshiping together, loving the Lord together, and encouraging each other with this. When we get together, like we did this morning, and like we will do after the sermon is done, we will have an opportunity to praise and worship and sing to our Lord together. And it is more encouraging to do it together than it is to do it on our own. There is something that God has put into our hearts that is benefited by the, the collective encouragement of other believers. This encourages us to persevere. It enhances our own worship and praise. Very simply, you need other Christians. Other Christians need you. God has not established the church to be people on their own. This is clear throughout the New Testament. God has established the church to be together, to be a body, to be helping each other, and this is one of the ways it can happen. In James chapter 5, verse 16, Paul, or James, sorry, also mentions speaking, and he uses the phrase one another. And he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We have a lot of verses to cover. This is the single hardest verse that is, contains the phrase, one another that I came across. Um, and so I'm not going to be able to expound it fully. James, I don't believe here, is referring to all sins. We should not find somebody else to tell every sin that we commit. Um, this is not the, the intent of the passage. I think it's more specifically referring to a physical healing that is connected to sin. Um, but again, this is a complicated passage, and honestly, I would need to dig into this a lot more to have a, a better understanding of it. Um, Douglas Moo, though, has a very helpful comment in his commentary on this passage, and he says, Mutual confessing sins, which James encourages as a habitual practice, is greatly beneficial to the spiritual vitality of the church. It is greatly beneficial to the spiritual vitality of the church. To tell others where you are struggling. To have them be praying for you. I've seen this in our small group. I mean, and there were times when, when I did things in the small group as one of the facilitators that I needed to apologize for and to confess. And to know that their brothers and sisters were there to forgive and to love and to, to be with me through anything was a great encouragement. This is a great place to start. It's also a place where accountability can, can occur. Right? Whether that's with the whole group or, or somebody else in the group that you're closer to. This is a good thing that James brings to us. Our next grouping, and the first few were fairly quick, so we'll, we'll spend some more time in the next ones. Our next grouping is encouragement. This occurs in four different passages. The idea to encourage one another. We'll focus in on one in Hebrews 10. Uh, but in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul there says to encourage one another. Um, with these words, to encourage one another and build one another up. He's specifically thinking about end times and, and the need to be reminding each other of what is in our future. Colossians 3 talks about letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another. And that is part of encouragement. But let's focus on Hebrews chapter 10. You can either look at it on the screen overhead or turn there. 
And this is the, probably the foremost verse that was in my mind when we were thinking about the small group ministry. In Hebrews 10, the author says to, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but instead encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author is coming out of chapters about the high priest that we have. Christ, our Savior, has gone before us, and he's the glorious, great high priest. If you were in the Sunday school classes we did on Hebrews, you'll, you'll remember this. The, the supremacy of Christ is a joy. The supremacy of Christ is something that we ought to praise him for continually. And to know that he is our high priest is a great, great encouragement. We can walk boldly into the throne of grace. But in the midst of that context, the author doesn't say that you should simply think about your high priest and and that will sustain you alone. He he brings in other believers. And he says, these glorious great truths are things that we need to be speaking to one another and we need to be thoughtful about how to stir up each other so that we can be encouraged, so that we can continue to press on as we see the day drawing. To consider how to do this is incredibly important. Yes, we are encouraged on Sundays at church. Yes, we we are encouraged by reading the Word of God. But when somebody thoughtfully approaches you and knows events in your life, knows your struggles, and knows them on a, a deeper level than most, their ability to encourage and to stir you up to love and good works goes up exponentially. Their ability to speak into your life in a loving way that is very helpful is far greater. We can honestly look at our lives and see this to be true. There are people that do this to us. There are people that, that lift our spirits. And it's not a stranger. That might happen occasionally, but there are consistent people in your life that can encourage you because they know you. In 1 Samuel, David is being pursued by Saul. He's in the wilderness. His, his spirits are not high. And Saul's son, Jonathan, it says in 1 Samuel twenty three sixteen, it says that he rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. If you know anything about Saul or David and Jonathan, their relationship was close. Right? And it's, it's, it's ironic that Saul's son just goes to David. Saul's looking for him. Saul can't find him. And Jonathan just goes to him. And he encourages him in the Lord. Right? Because he's close to David. Because he loves David. Because he knows David. And David is strengthened in God. That is what this passage is talking about. The small groups that I've been a part of have, been, have made this obvious to me. I, I am more able to encourage those people in my small groups than I am other people in the church. And, and I can encourage everyone generally. Hopefully that is happening today. But specific things about some people that I can do a better job of encouraging them in. I can stir them up in a more effective way. This is also why the author of Hebrews says that we ought not to neglect meeting together. 
Ever since I graduated college, there's been a group of friends that I've gotten together with every year. Every summer we find a place that's central to our where we live, and we drive or fly there, and we spend a weekend together. And we have a very good time. We, we talk about many different things. We share old memories, and we can encourage each other. It is far easier for Larissa to encourage me or me to encourage her than it is for my college friends. Right? And the basic reality is... See, I, I see... Larissa, far more consistently, we share a lot more life together than I do with my college friends. And so I can be encouraged by a time, a weekend away with them, but it's not as great as the encouragement I receive from somebody who is living close with me. You need the church, and you need it regularly. And that is one of the reasons that we establish the small group ministry. Again, this can happen in other ways, and it it needs to. But this was a foundational verse for a ministry, the ministry of small groups. Our next grouping is the negative commands. There are many commands, eight passages that I found, where it says, do not do this, and it includes the phrase, one another. So I want to read through them. Galatians 5.15 will, will be up above me, and we'll focus on that verse, but... I just want you to hear the different things that can break apart our fellowship. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you know the difficulties that church was going through. Galatians 5, 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So rather than a face-to-face, there is this possibly face-to-face biting and devouring and talking, but maybe more so the, the gossiping that goes on behind the scenes. Later in Galatians, Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And that happens when selfishness and pride drive a wedge between our love and our unity. Colossians 3, verse 9, Paul says, to do, do not lie to one another. Titus 3.3, 3, in referring to what we used to be, Paul says that we ourselves were once foolish, obedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And in verse 4 he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And the implication is that we will live in this new life and run from the old, where we hated one another. James 4 says to do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Probably one of the strongest passages about what Christians can do to each other. James even goes so far as to use the word murder, I think in a a symbolic way. Um, But he uses that strong phrase to say what can happen in the church. And he says do not speak evil against one another. In James 5, he says, Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. And in Romans 14, Paul says, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Back in Galatians, Paul says, Do not bite and devour one another. And if we look at any of these passages, 
there's a very simple reality we need to, re- to draw from these. Sin will break apart a church. Right? Sin splits the body of Christ. Specifically, relational sin that we have looked at this morning destroys body life. Perhaps there's, there's somebody here in the, in the church that you just don't want to talk to. That you'd rather not bring up a certain topic around because it's not going to go well. The, the solution that the scripture gives us is, is repentance. Right? It's encouragement. It's forgiveness. It's love. It's unity. The solution is never isolation. The scripture never gives us that option. You know, if, if the church is difficult, withdraw. That, that is not written anywhere in the scriptures. But rather, God has put this church, God has put the relationships in this church together for your sanctification. I look back on five years of marriage and I realize that God put us together for many reasons and I, I see one of the primary ones as our sanctification. Because when Larissa and I got married, there were a lot of areas where we easily clashed. And you might look at that, if, if, if you're dating or you're wanting to date, you might look at a situation like that and say, well, it's not going to work. But because God's intent is sanctification, it's going to work. Because He is going to grow you and He is going to change you through those difficulties so that you are more like Christ. And that is what He is also doing in His church. This church isn't perfect. This church has problems because it's full of sinners. And if you found the perfect church, you could not join because it would cease to be perfect once you joined. And that is God's intent. We are to rub up against each other relationally and forgive and love and stumble and fall and get, pick each other up and keep going and grow together. The next grouping I titled Service and Submission. Service and Submission. And in John 13, our Lord leads this example beautifully. It's before He's going to the cross and Jesus does the absolute unthinkable in the disciples' minds. He acts like the lowest of low servants and washes their first century disgusting feet. A task reserved for not even Jewish slaves, but a slave you would capture from another nation and you would give all of the terrible jobs to that slave. Jesus did that task. And then he reclines at the table once again and he says to his disciples, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Okay? So there is nothing beneath the Christian. Because our Lord has already done the lowest thing that could be done. And by the way, it wasn't washing their feet. It was going to the cross and taking our sins upon Himself. That was the, the lowest He could go to. right? To be separate from His Father. To be declared sin for us. There is no lower for the Son of God. He did that. 
And so the, the authors of the New Testament echo this example throughout when they tell us to outdo one another in showing honor, to, to bear one another's burdens, to serve one another through love, to submit to one another, to show hospitality, and so on. This happens in relationships. Whether it be a physical task, uh, some of the youth group was blessed to go over and help put a fence in for Fran yesterday. Right? That is a way we can serve one another. It's a, it's a physical task that was a blessing to them. It can also happen in non-physical tasks. The ideas of bearing each other's burdens. Uh, putting somebody else's desires before your own. Being hospitable. Denying yourself for the sake of another. This is what it means to get down, to submit, and to serve. And this is a Christian priority. Right? This is what we ought to be doing because this is exactly what our Savior did. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life. And so in Galatians it says that we ought to do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right, there is a priority here for your good service and submission. It doesn't allow you to ignore others outside, others that you interact with in the world. Right? Do good to them as well, but your priority is here. Last year, I was blessed to be in a small group with Shannon. And I would not have had opportunity to serve her the way we were able to in that small group, unless we're together in a small group. It just it provided a venue, once again, for this to happen. And she's a great example of somebody that we can serve and love, right? To bear burden, her burden with her, to give her rides to places. She came to a small group every week because somebody gave her a ride. To provide housing, that, that happened as a result of our small group. She was able to stay with somebody when she needed it. Right? There was visits that went to her, and many of you did that, and amen. And we prayed for her consistently. Right? Again, it's something that can happen and needs to happen throughout the church. Um, but I was blessed to be able to do that specifically because we saw her every other week, and we knew exactly the difficulties she was going through. Our last two groupings are the, the ones with the most passages in the New Testament. The first one is unity. And this occurs ten times. The phrase, one another, occurs in a passage talking about unity ten different times. And it should. In John chapter 17, our Lord prays for future believers. And the primary thing He prays is for their unity. And He prays that that unity would first be with the Father. And then He prays that it would also be with each other. And so there is a need for us to have vertical unity, like we were talking about in Sunday school. There are vertical and horizontal relationships. Our vertical is with God. Our horizontal are with each other. There is a need for vertical unity before we seek out horizontal unity. We must have our unity with God. We must be united around His truth before we share intimate unity with each other. That is why we do not have unity with the church street. Because our unity would not come from a view of God that is the same. 
A, a unity would not come from a view of salvation that is the same. And so we do not share that unity with them. And rightly so. Because our unity must first start with the Father. But once we are united with the Father, the natural byproduct is union with each other. If you've ever been traveling or on vacation and you come across another Christian, there is a unity that happens immediately. And as you talk, you're going to have a far better, far deeper conversation than you would if you came across somebody who likes the same sport you do, right? or was interested in the same type of cars that you, did, you, you liked, or music. Right? There is a unity that surrounds the gospel. In Romans 12, verse 16, Paul says to live in harmony with one another. And this highlights our call to unity. To live in harmony with one another. Living is a continual state of being. The Ocean City Bible Conference is in a few weeks. We look forward to going every year. And that church down there is a wonderful church, and we love seeing a lot of those people, spending time with them. We do not live in harmony with them. We are in harmony with them in Christ, but we are not living day by day with them. And that's just a practical reality. We vacation there. We don't live there. Harmony speaks of a relationship that does not have discord. It doesn't have resentment. Desire to be close to each other. And Paul's thinking of our mindset here. To, to live in harmony is very, very similar to being of the same mind with each other. And in James, we get a clue as to how this gets broken down. In James chapter 4, he, he starts off the chapter and he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes this disharmony? And as James expounds that and answers that question, he reveals that our selfish desires, our, our loving of ourself before God, our loving of ourself before others, drives disharmony. It's what drives that discord, that resentment. It drives the fighting and the quarreling and the frustration so easily in a church. So it's a very good thing for us to look in our hearts and say, are we seeking unity with the Lord? Are we trying to please Him in our desires? And then are we also seeking to love others? Because living in harmony with each other requires that our selfish, sinful desires die. And that must happen first. And realistically, that's going to need to continue to happen as we progress in the faith. But this informs our understanding of harmony in the body. If we are going to be a loving body that is united, we must deny ourselves Right? Take up our cross daily and follow our Lord. Denying our feelings, denying our desires, and putting His priorities first, and then also seeking to put others before ourselves. Again, it starts with the Lord, and it extends to each other. Colossians 3.13 highlights another aspect of this, this unity that I want to focus on. 
Paul there says that we are to bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And we need to focus on this because harmony will not occur consistently or 100% of the time in the church. We are all sinners. As we strive, as we fight sin, we do not succeed 100% of the time, and so we give in, and so we hurt others. But harmony is not meant to be defeated by sin. Because God has given us the means of restoration to bring harmony back. So how can we restore harmony when it is broken? In 1 Peter 4, verse 8, Peter says, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And sometimes that is what is necessary to restore harmony in the church. Somebody has sinned against you and it is something that you will gladly, lovingly overlook. And sometimes that is the right path to take. Other times, like it says in Matthew chapter 18, you need to go to that brother or sister and you need to lovingly bring to their attention what has happened in hopes of seeing them restored, in hopes of bringing that relationship back to a good place of unity. And so the the scriptures have given us the, the ways to do this because it's going to be necessary. We are going to need to do these things as brothers and sisters in the church. And this is all fueled by the gospel. Because in Matthew 18, one of the disciples asked Jesus, well, how many times am I going to do this forgiveness thing? What about seven? It seems like a lot to me, so let's go with that number. And Jesus just completely shatters their understanding of true forgiveness. And he tells them, no, it's 70 times 7. And not because you should keep a log and start counting, and once the person reaches 490, you get to stop, but because you don't stop. He then tells a parable of the unforgiving servant, and this is the most encouraging, helpful, convicting parable when it comes to forgiveness. And to bring this up, and I want to focus on this, because forgiveness can be incredibly hard. Because hurt can run deep. Because sometimes people aren't repentant. So Jesus tells this parable. And he talks about the servant that owed 10,000 talents. Which in our day is is probably around $2.5 billion, if I remember my math correctly. Whatever it is, it's an astronomical amount that you're not supposed to be able to earn. That's the point of the parable. You're not supposed to be able to pay off this kind of debt. It is way too much. And the master forgives the servant. And there should be joy and rejoicing and worship and then a heart that longs to forgive others because of how great the debt that has been forgiven them. But that servant goes out in Jesus' parable and he finds somebody who owes him a hundred denarii. That amount matters, just so you know. A a wage earner in that day would earn one denarii for a day's labor. So he worked a hundred days and earned all that money. In our our world, you're talking twenty, thirty, maybe forty thousand dollars. 
So this is not a small hurt. This isn't a few cents or pocket change. The hurt is real. The the debt is real. But the contrast is what Jesus is, is setting up. And so when that servant shakes his fellow servant and says, pay me what you owe, and he will not forgive him, there, there should be astonishment in those hearing the parable. That they should look at this servant and say, how, how could you? What are you doing? Your, your debt was thousands and thousands of times greater. How could you not forgive? Even though this debt is, it means something, how could you not forgive? And that is exactly the parable Jesus is setting up. Our sin is against a holy God that will forever be far greater than us, far more holy than us. And our sin against that holy God is far greater than any sin anyone will ever commit against you. And it's not close. My sin against a holy God is vastly greater than anything you could do to me. And we can do terrible things to each other. We're not negating our sin against each other. We're not saying just get over it. We're comparing it to what God has done for us. And so in Ephesians 2, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. And the Holy God has every right to punish your sin. If you are not a Christian here, you need to, to focus right here on this part of the sermon. Because this is your position before a holy God. He has every right to judge you eternally and to condemn you to hell. And there is no good reason you can give Him that would make Him stop. You, you cannot offer Him anything. You cannot tell Him why you did the things you did. You cannot pay for your sins. And Christian, that was you. That was me. We were by nature children of wrath, it says in Ephesians 2. Like the rest of mankind, when you come across a phrase in the Bible that says, but God, it is an opportunity to rejoice. It happens multiple times, and usually what comes before it is the reality of your position as a sinner before God, and then it says, but God. Because you couldn't do it, but God did. But God made us alive together with Christ. If you have been hurt by another believer and you refuse to to foster a forgiving heart and to seek the restoration of that relationship, you have forgotten the gospel. It might really hurt and it's not easy to pursue restoration but we are the servants who had the 10,000 talent debt forgiven. And somebody owes you 100 denarii. And one day we will stand in glory and see the fullness of the reality of our salvation. And on that day, every grudge, every bitterness we hung on to in this life, every bit of anger will be seen for exactly what it was. It was a debt, but it was only a hundred denarii. And so this is a biblical call to unity that certainly extends far beyond a small group ministry. But as believers, we are called to unity 
And when that breaks down, forgiveness brings us back. Repentance brings us back and, and we can be restored to one another. And that is what we ought to do as believers. Our last grouping is to love one another. To love one another. This is the largest of the groupings, and I think appropriately so. The second greatest commandment is to love each other as you would yourself. Right? The first starts, obviously, with the Lord. We love God first, and then we love one another. And so the New Testament speaks many times of our call and our need to love one another. It should be an evident thing. And as a means of encouragement, praise the Lord, this church evidently, clearly, visibly loves one another. It is a good thing. People, time and again, will visit this church and come away saying they love one another. And that is a blessing. That is a thing that we ought to praise God for and to uh, encourage each other with. We also know that as we continue in this life, we are never done with, with the fruits of the Spirit. We are never, never done fighting sin. We are never done growing in our love for one another. So in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That verse, I'll combine that with 1 Peter one twenty two, and we'll look at both of these together. Peter says there, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so from both of these verses, we see that our call is to love one another earnestly and to do so more and more, for that love to increase. If you're at a good place today, praise God, keep going, keep growing. There's more. We can love better. We can love more consistently. We can love more deeply, more earnestly. Do you desire to grow in your love for the body of Christ? If your answer is an adamant no, it is likely that you do not love Christ. It is likely that you're not saved. If you are adamantly refusing to earnestly grow in your love for fellow believers, you have not tasted the love of Christ. If you're saying, yes, I, now that you mention it, I would like to grow in my love for Christ, and hopefully today, and hopefully these are helpful. Or if you're thinking about this regularly, then it's just a matter of how do we do this? Right? How do we increase in our love for others? How do we grow in our earnest love? And that is one of the foundational reasons that we established and set up small groups. We, we want to foster places where that love can increase. The simple reality that is, is, is that as time and relationship increase, love increases. This is most evident in marriage. Very often people will love each other more after years of marriage than they did when they first started. The sad reality is that's not always true in our world. That people sometimes diminish in their love for each other over the years. 
And that brings us back to what we talked about earlier. Sin destroys relationships. And so there is a a need for us to work, to put in effort, to practice repentance and forgiveness so that love can increase and your earnest love can grow for the other believers in this church. Humility, godly selflessness, care for one another fosters love and helps it to grow. This is the reason that we have tried to set up a small group ministry that simply that, that avoids just simple hanging out um, and just talking about everyday things. We want to focus our time around the things of God to help relationships grow, to help love grow in a healthy way. So if you've been in a small group or if you want to join one this coming fall, you'll see that we don't just get together and have coffee cake. Um, even though there might be coffee cake at some of the small groups, be encouraged. Um, we get together and we look at a book of the Bible. We look at a book that somebody wrote about spiritual things. Maybe we watch uh, some sermons or uh, some, something that will foster discussion and that will help us to grow together in many ways. But how can we foster this increase? Earnest love is a, a term that's not often used If something is earnest, if you are being earnest about something, you are serious in your purpose or your effort. And we can probably come up with things that we are earnest about. Things that we pursue diligently. If you're earnest, you're showing a depth and a sincerity. It's not something you just pick up once in a while and, and read through quickly, but you are showing a depth and a sincerity. We should study the Bible earnestly as opposed to reading it for five minutes once a week. Right? There's a big difference there. If you are being earnest, you're showing a great warmth or intensity of spirit. Uh, uh, an enthusiasm that comes along with being earnest. And the call is to love one another earnestly. that I think might be helpful to us doing this in a more consistent way. First, remind yourself of the gospel frequently. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The gospel gives us a foundation for loving each other that is deeper and greater than any other foundation you can have. Salvation is an event that has occurred in the past, if you are a Christian, that has eternal consequences. And one of those is that it creates a love for each other and for the church. So remind yourself of the gospel frequently. If somebody is hard to love, remind yourself of how hard it was for God to love you. The gospel is the greatest example of that. Secondly, serve one another. When you serve others, you grow in your love for them and you're showing an active love. God has designed the body such that as we serve one another, our love for each other increases. Third, intentionally seek time with each other. Intentionally seek time with each other. It would be clearly foolish if I was married, but I only wanted to see my wife once every couple weeks and only hoped to talk about the weather. 
It would be clearly foolish because I would not be loving her. I would not be growing in intimacy with her. And I would, I would clearly not care about her. But if I'm intentionally seeking time with my wife and having conversations that go far beyond the, the normal everyday, then our love will grow. Small groups are not the only way to do this, but again, they're a, a venue for it to happen. So, whether it be a small group or something else, the, the question to all of us is, are we doing this? Are we consistently seeking time with one another? Are you consistently here on Sundays, seeking to worship with your brothers and sisters? And, and seeking to have a conversation with somebody before or after that, that is more than just superficial? Do, do you seek out, perhaps, a Bible study or or one-on-one get-togethers with other people in the church? Maybe you're not a group person, but more of an individual person. Are you seeking those opportunities? And maybe, maybe inviting people over for dinner. One of the things that Larissa and I talked about when I built the smoker was, can we use this to bless others and to have fellowship? And, and that was one of the main reasons we were okay with doing it. Because it takes time. Because it, it costs money. But when you have to cook meat for 12 hours, you can invite somebody over at hour six and talk for six hours. And it's a blessing. Maybe you know somebody in the church who lives in your area and you just call them because you're going shopping and you want some fellowship. Maybe it's a spur of the moment dropping in. Josiah and Mickey live two miles from us and it's wonderful because we might just call them up some night and say, are you doing anything? We're coming over. And we do that sometimes. And it's a blessing. But it's something that needs to be pursued. And along with that, number four is the, the depth of relationship needs to be pursued as well. And I've mentioned this a few times, but, but loving each other earnestly seeks relational depth. So the question is, do, does my heart desire earnestly for my love for the brothers and sisters specifically in this church to increase. This is, briefly, biblical one-anothering, as I've called it for, for the title today. Biblical one-anothering. The Bible calls us to do many things for one another, to one another, and, and there are things that we ought to avoid in the same way. And there are, are many ways we can do these things, and... and the call to every Christian here is to do these things. We encourage you to join a small group. Again, there's sign-up sheets in the back. If you were not in a small group, please sign up. And that is a, a venue where these things can be happening. Um, if for any reason you're not able to, these things still need to be happening. Because you are a Christian. You are bought by you are brought into a family that, that is called a body. And it needs you, and you need it. That is how God designed it to function. And so we encourage you, with these passages, to love the Lord more by loving His body more. And to serve, and to submit, and to forgive, and repent, and be unified with His people. If you have any questions, please come see myself or Gary, um, specifically about small groups. Um, we, look at, we look forward to this fall. We hope everybody can join. If you can't, that is okay. Um, 
But this is our church, and these are the people that we get to be with. These are the people that God has put around us. So let's biblically love and serve one another. Let's pray.